Well, some of the first words that you teach a young child to say are the words, thank you. And if you've had children, had the experience of raising kids, you've probably taught them to say thank you and realize you can quickly get them to say the words, thank you, but it takes quite a bit longer for them to actually mean thank you. It's like that with a lot of things, the apologies as well. Saying sorry is easy, meaning to be sorry, meaning that you're sorry is quite another thing. And I've seen this as a parent when we've been raising our children. My wife, Julianne, and I have five little ones under 10 that were raised, 10 and under, I should say, that were raising the 10-year-old. That goes fast. Some of you know just how fast it is before you know what they're adults. But we've taught them to say and to mean thank you. And as I've done that, I've realized I've become more thankful. You teach your children to say thank you for something, and you realize all of a sudden just how thankful for you are for your parents when they perhaps did that same thing for you. This is the same in ministry. When I was not in ministry vocationally, I was thankful for pastors. I was thankful for teachers. I was thankful for leaders at youth retreats. But when I became a leader, when I became a pastor, when I started to see behind the scenes of church ministry, my level of thankfulness for those years as a teen, as a kid, became even higher. Thankfulness, it's easy to say the words thank you, to actually have a heart that means thankful or that is thankful takes years of experience and experiences that change our thinking. And nowhere is this more significant than when it comes to our thankfulness to God. We're not born thankful. We need to be taught how to be thankful. We need to be taught about what God has done and how to thank him for it. And when we say thank you in church and even sing songs, often we can say the words, but in our heart, we're only partially understanding just how much we have been given by our good God. And Psalm 107 instructs us in thanking God. And so this morning, we're going to learn that those who have experienced God's redemption are called to say thank you to God. It's not that complicated of a message. You've experienced his work, say thank you. And I look out and I see many of you and I know so many of you and your lives personally, and I know that you say thank you to God often. I know that you pray before meals. I know that you pray with your spouse saying thank you to God. I know that you perhaps pray during work. You're praying throughout the day and you're saying thank you to God often. And that's a good thing. If you're not doing those things, perhaps Psalm 107 will just be a good encouragement to say thank you. But I imagine where this Psalm will really be helpful for us is in saying a more thoughtful thank you saying a more heart level, heart deep thank you. I know that's what it's done for me. And as we read Psalm 107, I want you to think of it in two ways. One, thinking of, we do this with scripture all the time, but thinking of it first, how does it apply in my life? How do I become more thankful? But then also thinking as you disciple other people, the Christian faith is not just a receiving kind of thing. It's a thing you receive and then you also instruct others in. And so each one of you who is a follower of Jesus is called to instruct at least one other person in the faith to teach up, to train, to disciple them, to be a disciple maker. And so think about the person or persons that you are responsible to disciple and think, how can I use Psalm 107 to show them how to be more thankful to God? So what does it do in me and what can I use Psalm 107 to show others how to be more thankful? So this is the question we're going to work through this morning is how do we develop a heart level attitude of thanks to God? We're called to give thanks because we've been redeemed. We want to make sure it's from the heart, not just the words. 
How do we get to that point? How do we get beyond simply saying the words? So Psalm 107 verse 1, hopefully you've turned there. It's broken into a few sections. Psalm 107 verses 1 to 3 is the introduction to this song. And psalm is just a fancy word for song. This is the songbook of the people of God. And so when we come to it, understanding it as a song is helpful. Sometimes it helps us to understand the phrases, the repetition of things that you might not otherwise repeat. But here's what it says in Psalm 107. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so whom he has redeemed from troubled and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. One of my favorite things in reading the Bible is when you come across a phrase that you already know so well, and then you realize you've been singing it in a song all along. And as I was reading it, I'm thinking, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And I'm realizing, wait, that's in songs that we sing. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Now, as we look at these first three verses, the introduction, the commands are very clear. And just as a tip, when you are reading the Bible, you're trying to understand what does it mean for me? The key to the meaning of a text is often tied to the verbs. And so those are the action words. And so in this first couple of verses, there's two action words that stand out prominently that we need to understand. They are the words give thanks and the word say. This is what the the congregation song leader is saying to the people. He's saying, you are to give thanks. That's an imperative. Give thanks to the Lord. You are, if you are redeemed by the Lord, you are to speak of it. You are to say so. God had done something in their lives. They were to declare it and they were to give thanks to him. But it's interesting that word order, the order of it, the text is organized. The first thing that they are to give thanks to the Lord for is for he is good. And so Write this down. We must be reminded of his character. That's the first thing. If you want to give a heart level of thanks to God, you need to first be reminded of the character of God. We need to be reminded of the character of God because that shapes all of our thinking about him. It's true that God's character is revealed in his actions. So God's love is displayed in his actions. And we'll talk about that in a moment. God's goodness is displayed in his actions. But God goes so far as to explicitly reveal his character. He just comes right out and says it. He says, I am good. There's no one like me. He makes us aware of his character. And the reason for that is because when you understand his character, that is the lens through which you view his actions. If you don't understand his character, the tendency is to misinterpret because we're sinful human beings to misinterpret his actions, to misinterpret them and to understand them improperly. One of the greatest reasons I believe that people are ungrateful to God is because they're unfamiliar with his character. And as a result, they're unfamiliar with his ways. He does things. It doesn't make sense to them and they're not thankful to him. Let me say it another way. When God doesn't give you what you want, when you want it, how you want it, it's unlikely you'll be thankful. But if you learn to trust his character, and learn to trust his ways, then you know and will be positioned to give thanks, knowing that he works in his timing, in his way. You'll understand the the experience of your life through the framework of he is good, he is loving, even if it doesn't work on your preferred timeline. And that's so important. Who you believe God is. If you want to change one thing for your, your next year, 
adjust the way you think about God and line it up with his word. If you believe that God is just a disengaged deity, so he's a God that created everything, he kind of wound up the clock, set it to go and walked away, then your thankfulness to God will be not really a thankfulness to God, but more a thankfulness to luck or to fate because it's just the way it is. Nothing's changing. He's not intervening in his creation. If you think of God as perhaps evil or malevolent, then if you're saying thank you to him, perhaps the reason you're saying thankful to him is kind of to manipulate him. You're like, well, if I bribe him with enough thanks, pacify him with enough thanks, then the angry God will turn away from me. And you become twisted in your thinking about who God is. If you believe that God does not exist, perhaps some of you here are in the camp of I'm here because some family or friends invited me. I don't believe that God exists. I kind of look around and I see all these people raising their hands and it's to thin air. If you believe that, then you wouldn't thank God clearly because you would be thinking you're thanking nobody. And that is so important to understand then why who we believe God is changes the way we behave. Years ago, a pastor wrote this. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I believe that's true. That's a true statement. What comes into your mind right now, when I say the word God, that's the most important thing about you because it shapes all of your life and your actions. Do you believe he is good? Or have you let the circumstances of your life cause you to doubt? If you have, could it be that the issue is not with his goodness, but with your understanding of his character and his ways? Do you believe that God is a God of steadfast love that endures forever? That's a pretty incredible statement. Do you believe that he keeps his promises? Do you believe that even if you don't see it in your lifetime, thousands, perhaps millions of followers of God have followed faithfully even when everything around them is going the opposite direction, when they don't see it in their lifetimes? when they don't see God's promises fulfilled the way they expected. Do you believe that here today, that God is a God of steadfast love, even when we live in a country that is spiraling morally, spiritually, financially, everything around us is crashing down. If you open your eyes, if you venture outside the Christian bubble and speak to people in our world, you will quickly realize just how absolutely messed up things are. How things are not like they were 30 years ago. Things are arguably much, much worse because the wickedness of our country is not hidden. It's on full display. And it's not just on full display. It's been called good over and over and over again. It's very challenging in those circumstances that we're in to say, God is a God of steadfast love. God is good when you look around at the world around us. But we remind ourselves of God's character. He is good. You look through scripture and you'll see examples of that. God's character, as I mentioned before, his character does show up in his actions. And so the next thing that's mentioned in the text is his steadfast love, which endures forever. God's steadfast love is something we must be reminded of if we're going to have a heart level thankfulness to God. When scripture speaks of the steadfast love of God, it's not some airy fairy out there feeling kind of thing. When it speaks of the steadfast love of God, 
his covenant-keeping love, it is tied to historical events. So his love, when it says his love endures forever, it's not just like, well, but you'll never see examples of it. No, you'll see multiple examples of how his steadfast love endures forever. And we're going to rehearse some of those, recite some of those through the rest of Psalm 107. But in verse two, it says this, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And then it gives an example of his steadfast love, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. So God's act of steadfast love was directly revealed in these people's lives. He had redeemed them from trouble. To be redeemed, if you're not familiar with that language, is another way of saying to be saved. Essentially, if you think of a slave being redeemed, it means somebody has come along and paid the price for their freedom. They have redeemed them. And God's people had been redeemed by God himself multiple times through history. And this most recent example of being gathered in from all these places. We'll talk about that. But it's significant that this is an act of his steadfast love. They had been in serious trouble. They had been scattered from their homeland of Jerusalem, Judah. They had been scattered all over the place. And to any Jewish person reading this psalm, they would have instantly remembered the Babylonian exile. So in the 6th century BC before Christ, Around 586 BC, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar came and he invaded, well, finished invading really, Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. And he conquered Jerusalem in that year. And he sent the captives into exile. And so in this moment, this is a, this is a very, very bad day for Israel. Israel had already had many bad days. They had separated into two kingdoms. In 586 or in 722, the Assyrians had taken the northern kingdom captive and exiled them. And the southern kingdom of Judah had not learned the lesson from them. They had not humbled themselves consistently. And so they too were sent off into exile. And it was terrible because not only were they sent into exile, but during that time, their city, Jerusalem, the holy city of God, was destroyed. And most significantly, the temple the symbol of God's presence among his people was destroyed. And the walls of the city were destroyed. And the people were scattered in some ways to the north, the south, the east, and the west. Many to the east in captivity under the Babylonians. And so this was a crisis moment for the people of Israel. Yet God worked through it and redeemed them. He actually brought them back as he promised he would. The prophets foretold God was going to bring his people back from captivity. And he did. And he brought them back to the land. And so this is where the psalm, the psalmist says, let the redeemed of the Lord, those he has gathered from all these places, let them say so. Let them give thanks to God. And just as there are four directions from where the people are brought from, the psalmist is now going to describe four groups of people. So verses 4 to 32, this is another chunk in the psalm. And he's going to describe four groups of people that have experienced God's redeeming steadfast love. To help keep them sorted out, we're going to give them some names. So the first group of people we'll call the wanderers. The second group of people we're going to call the rebellious. The third group of people, the fools. And the fourth group of people, the sailors. And you may find yourself identifying more closely with one of these groups of people in your experience with God. But as I read through this, it's a longer chunk of the text. I want you to remember these four groups of people. We're going to go through them one at a time. We're going to go through the wanderers, the rebels, 
the fools and the sailors. But I also want you to keep in mind, this is a a little bit much for a Sunday morning, but I want you to keep in mind four stages that the psalmist goes through with each one. First is the crisis. So each one goes through a crisis. They're found in a moment of crisis, of trouble. Each group then cries out to God. Each group experiences a change that God brings. And then each group is called to give thanks to God. And so let's look at verse four and you're going to see this played out. It's kind of neat. You can highlight or mark with your, with your pencil if you want or a pen to kind of mark these off and see the repeated themes and it'll stand out to you hopefully very clearly. So verse four, it says, some wandered in desert wastes. These are the wanderers. They, some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. God had judged the people of Judah. He had scattered them. Some of them, it appears, did not go into exile, but actually wandered to the south into the Sinai desert, into a place of no water, no food, because it was either get killed or flee. And when they fled, they fled to a place that would eventually start to kill them, the desert. Gone were the days of plenty where they had even simple things like food and water. We're not talking about having a nice city, a nice vacation. We're talking about just bare survival, food and water. They were clearly in a moment of crisis. And what is their response? Verse six recounts that. It says in verse six, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. So they did exactly what God tells his people to do in crisis, cry out to him. What was the result? He changed the situation. He answered their cry. Verse seven continues about the situation, how it was changed. It says, he led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. God had provided exactly what they had needed. God redeemed them by taking from the desert, placing them in a city. Now, some of us here, I know, want to move out of this city. <laughs> we're like, Can, give me the county. But we're not saying, give me the desert. Give me the, the area away from food and water. The, the city for them represented security. It represented provision. God being able to give them food, water, community, the ability to have this kind of fellowship. It's a, it's a good thing. And God gave it to them when they cried out to him. And now the psalmist issues them a call these wanderers. He says, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. The psalmist teaches them the proper response when you cry out to God and he delivers is to come back and say, thank you, God, because of what he's done. Okay, group two, the rebellious. What's their crisis? Verse 10, some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death prisoners in affliction and in irons for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the most high. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help them. Their crisis is worse than the wanderers because their crisis is tied to their sin very clearly. Whereas the wanderers could be there just because of the sin of the nation, the rebels It's clearly they have rebelled against God and he has bowed down their hearts with hard labor. He has put them in this situation. God has used the Babylonians as his judgment on these people. They've been taken exile into Babylon. I guess for you, it's this way. Taken exile into Babylon in the east. They're in chains. 
They're in darkness. They are in a desperate situation. They're sitting in jail. Now, when Babylon invaded Judah, they also took, at one point, a king of Judah, a king by the name of Manasseh. Some of you may know his his story. It's a fascinating account. And so I want to read for you to give an illustrative picture of just how rebellious the people of Judah were and how deserving of punishment. So I'm going to jump over for a moment to 2 Kings chapter 21, verses 2 to 6, and it records Manasseh's life. It says, And he did, Manasseh, that is, what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah his father had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah, as Ahab king of Israel had done, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. If you're new to the Christian faith, that's really bad. God had commanded, God had commanded monotheism, that you would just worship him. And all through the history of Israel, they had gone astray. They had worshiped false gods. They had taken and built high places, places to worship and offer sacrifices to other gods. They had done exactly like the pagan nations that God had drove out before them. And Manasseh was no different. In fact, he was worse. It says in verse four, and he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, I will put my name. So to make a mockery of God, he puts altars in the very temple in the very place that God said he was going to make his name dwell. Verse five, and he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And if that wasn't bad enough, verse six tells you just how awful Manasseh was. And he burned his son as an offering and used fortune telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers, people that would Anyways, we won't go into that. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. This is the king of God's people, sacrificing his son to a foreign deity, using necromancers, telling omens like he is a messed up king. And so what does God do? God judges him. God judges him. And actually the king of Babylon takes Manasseh into captivity. And scripture records for us, that when Manasseh was taken into captivity, the king would take him with hooks. So this is kind of a graphic scene, but they would actually put either hooks through his nose or through his lips. And there would be some kind of a chain to the other king. And so Manasseh would be led around by the king of Babylon, make one wrong move. And you can just imagine what happens to your face. So the king of Babylon leads Manasseh around with hooks. He was super humbled, super despised, super humiliated. And that was a just punishment because of his wickedness. So Manasseh, he goes into exile and probably all of us here are thinking, good for him. That's exactly what he deserves to do that to God. For sure. That was God's judgment. And it says in the text, there's no one to help them. No one to help them. They deserved it for their atrocities. But look at the text in verse 13, back in Psalm 107. If this doesn't wake you up, I don't know what would. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. People like Manasseh cried to the Lord in their trouble. And God just punished him. Said, have it. Wipe you right out. No, 
The text says, and he delivered them from their distress. He delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. They cried to God in their despicable situation. He changed things. I was reading through first and second Kings with my, my son at home, our kids, and reading about Manasseh. And I was like, this guy's messed up. Man, what a messed up guy. And then my son's like, well, and he repents. I'm looking down at second Kings. I'm like, no, he doesn't. Totally not remembering that there's second Chronicles, which records things from a different angle. And so he's like, no, in second Chronicles, we learned about in Sunday school today. And I'm like, what are the odds? What are the timing? <laughs> So we go and look at 2 Chronicles 33, verses 12 to 13. And much to my surprise, because I had kind of judged Manasseh. I'm like, he's a loser who deserves to be destroyed. Well, look at 2 Chronicles 33, verses 12 to 13. He was in distress, Manasseh. He entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him. And God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Wow. That is grace. That is incredible. Manasseh, the guy who sacrificed his own son, was humbled, cried out to God, and God changed his situation. God was incredibly gracious and merciful. As a result, the psalmist issues the same call. He says, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. You might see a theme coming out. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. They were in crisis, a crisis they fully deserved. They cried out to God. He changed them. And now they are called, say thank you. Teaching them, say thank you to God. How about the fools? Looking down at verse 17. Some were fools through their sinful ways and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food and they drew near to the gates of death. The fool's crisis was also self-induced. Not like the wanderers necessarily. Definitely like the rebels. The fool's crisis was self-induced. Their ailment was perhaps some kind of physical affliction or ailment which left them. And the text just simply says they suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food. They were in crisis. They deserved what they had coming. And yet, in the midst of it, they cried out. Verse 19, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. So whatever physical affliction they were facing, when they cried out to God, he healed them and he delivered them. He actually brought them back to the land as verse two reminded us up at the top. He brought them from all over back to the promised land. And they too were issued the call to give thanks. A repeat of the same verse again, let them give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. When you've experienced that kind of deliverance, you know on a whole new level, just how true God's steadfast love is. We have the wanderers, we have the rebels, we have the fools, and now we're looking at the sailors. The sailors we don't know too much about. They're on the sea, obviously. They could be in captivity, being used by the Babylonians as slave labor to row their ships. We're not entirely certain. 
but they see the hand of God in a different way. Verse 23, it says, some went down to the ships, to the sea and ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to the heavens. They went down to the depths. You can imagine being on a ship. (laughs) That is not a good description. They went up to the heavens. They went down to the depths. That means it's pretty turbulent. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits end. In other words, they had reached the point so many people have reached in the midst of a storm. They're powerless. There's nothing they can do to to save themselves. There's no radio call for help. There's no search and rescue team coming out in the midst of the storm. It's them, the waves and their little boat or big boat being tossed all over the place, completely helpless. And in their situation, they too cry to God and he changes the situation. Verse 28, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. Yet again, same pattern. Crisis, their crisis, more of a natural disaster. They call out to God. They cry out to him. He changes the situation. And as a result, they too then are called to thankfulness. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. That's what the steadfast love of God looks like. You want to give a heart level thanks to God. You got to remember his character. You also have to remember his steadfast love and his steadfast love looks like something in history. It looks like wanderers being redeemed. It looks like rebels being redeemed. It looks like the fools being redeemed. Even the people in natural disasters being redeemed. God can do it. We all will face crisis sooner or later in our lives. And not all of them are the same, just like the situation in the text. Some of them are a result of the sin around you. The fact that you live in a very pagan nation. Some of the crisis you'll meet are a result of your rebellion against God. Some of the crisis you'll meet will be a result of your foolishness spurning his wisdom. Some of the crisis you might reach might just be, or might encounter might just be a natural disaster. You're all going to be in crisis at one time or another, just like I will be. And you know, it's a crisis when you are powerless to do anything about it. When you cannot change your situation. Unfortunately, most of us deceive ourselves far too long thinking we can change your situation. We actually make it quite a lot worse. And in crisis, what are you going to do? Well, everybody cries out in crisis. They cry out either for help or they cry out in rage. Many people cry out for help, but they go to all the wrong sources. So the crisis happens in your life and you cry out to family. You cry out to a doctor. You cry out to the justice system. You cry out to friends. And those all have their place in God's design, but they are not your savior. They cannot deliver you from every crisis. They simply don't have the power that God does. The Israelites made this mistake. The Israelites were in crisis time and time again, and sometimes they relied on the power of a foreign nation, like the Egyptians, which was described as a reed that's going to, you're going to lean on it and it's going to pierce your hand. It's actually a fallen, it's, it's, it's folly. 
to depend on fallen people in your moment of crisis, to depend on anyone other than the, the power of God. But then let's say you cry out to God. You get it right. You're not crying out to all the others. You're crying out to God. Well, the reality is most people in their moment of crisis, especially self-induced crisis, will cry out to God, but not in repentance. They'll cry out in rage. This is what Proverbs 19 verse 3 tells us. And it's so, so descriptive of human nature. Proverbs 19 verse 3. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, what's his heart do? His heart rages against the Lord. When you are in crisis that you deserve, who do you blame? You blame God. You get angry at God. We all do this. This is the nature of our fallen humanity, to blame someone else for our problem. You see it on even a a small level. You set up your schedule bad. You didn't plan margin. And anybody that gets in your way afterwards is the one you blame. But it's actually you. That's a, a, a small example. You shipwreck your life. Who do you blame? You blame God. It's God's fault. No, it's not God's fault. It's your fault. You're the rebel. You're the fool. But it isn't instinctive in the human heart to blame it on God. So knowing that, let's not do that. In the moment of our crisis, whether it's self-induced, whether it's because of living in a pagan nation, whether it's a natural disaster, we cry out to God. When the psalmist says, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, he's not saying they cried angrily to the Lord in their trouble. No, they cried with repentance. They were cried with humility. This is a humble cry of somebody who has realized every other option is futile. 100% of my hope is in the Lord. That's all I've got. It's you, God. I'm crying out to you. I'm humbling. I'm saying, save me, God. There's no one else. You throw all your hope onto God and God alone for saving And he answers. This is the awesome reminder of the text is that you are never too far gone to cry out to God. If you are hearing this message here today, God is perhaps giving you the opportunity in the moment of your crisis to be reminded you can cry out to him. Manasseh sacrificed his own son. That's pretty awful. And yet God responded to his cry. Whatever you have done, God is willing to listen to your cry. There's nothing you have done, no place that you are in that puts you beyond the steadfast love of the Lord reaching you. However, you must cry out. He's not going to come until you've reached the point of humbly relying on him alone. You must cry out. You must stop running to other things to answer your prayers. God answers, he delivers, he redeems in his timing and in his way. There are some people in this room who, frankly, without God would not be here today. Even in this past year, as I was kind of thinking over the year, there are multiple people that I know were not for God's power at work in your life. You would not be here today. Absolutely would not be here today. God, you were in crisis, you cried out, God delivered you. Now, the saddest part is that so few people actually know that story. You know it. You know that God has delivered you. 
And Psalm 107 is your reminder. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Say thank you to God, but tell others about it. I can't tell your story for you. You have that story to tell. Two final points as we finish up this passage. You want to give heart-level thanks to God? You need to be reminded of his character, reminded of the steadfast love, and reminded of his power. The psalmist is going to finish the psalm by focusing on the incredible power of God to both build up and to destroy. And it, it reminds us as we read through it that redemption is not an accident. So you might have a crisis. You might cry out and something miraculous might happen. And you might then be tempted later on to look back and say, that was probably chance. That was probably just coincidence. But that is not the case. You are not here because of chance. You are here because God has worked. The people of Israel did not return to the land just because by chance, a king named Cyrus over Persia was just kind of had a good foreign policy. And he's like, ah, send them back. No, it's God was at work through Cyrus. They return because God is sovereign and he keeps his promises. So these final verses are both a call to humility and a call to hope. Verse 33 Psalm 107, verse 33. He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. On the other hand, verse 35, he turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water. And there he lets the hungry dwell and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing, they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth." He's the one that can make streams into deserts. He can make deserts into streams. He's the one that has the power to do that. The exile did not happen to the Israelites because of a poor military strategy. It happened because God was turning their streams into a desert to discipline them. They came back, not because of foreign policy primarily, but because God was turning a desert into streams to show his steadfast love. Here's the message. Your life is not so secure that God can't destroy it, can't humble you, can't turn your plenty into wasteland. And you're also not so far gone that he can't turn your wasteland, your desert into a stream to be able to satisfy your soul. The passage concludes, verse 43, whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. If you want to be a wise person, dwell on this Psalm, Psalm 107, the wanderers, the fools, the rebels, the people who are sailors, all the different scenarios, God's steadfast love is at work. And we want to dwell and think about that. One final call for application you want to give a heart level thanks to God, you need to make this personal. You need to make this personal. Not just the Israelites back then, but you today. In your crisis, have you cried out to God? When he changes things, have you 
obeyed the call to give thanks to him. Every Christian has a story to tell because every Christian is the redeemed. So let the redeemed of the Lord say so. You have a story to tell. I used to think my story wasn't very good or great uh, because it wasn't as dynamic and interesting as some of the other testimonies or stories that I had heard. I didn't come out of a life of crazy crime, of drugs and alcoholism, of sexual addiction or, or um, living that way. I was the good kid, right? The kid that was raised in a, in a Christian home or a Christian environment who had multiple generations of Christian parents and grandparents who had a Christian education. And yet, in the midst of it, I realized I wasn't a good kid. I wasn't actually good in the eyes of God. I was just as dead in my sins as the guy doing life in prison for murder. Just as dead in my sins, just as incapable of attaining to the righteousness of God. When I came face to face with the righteousness of God, I fell short of his standard, massively short. I was a dead man spiritually. And all the things I did could not make me right with God. Even though I had so many privileges and blessings and amazing as you could think of it like a runway, right? You have this great runway to launch into life and yet you can never span the gap. You fall incredibly short. We all have testimonies of different kinds. My testimony is that even a good kid doesn't get in. A good kid does not get in. And I wasn't good. That's the world's definition. I was actually totally depraved, totally, completely dead in my sin. Even with that runway, I fell massively short of the glory of God. And I cried out to God and he saved me. I cried out to him and he saved me. He changed things. I was in crisis. I cried out and he changed. And now I'm called to give thanks to him and to be one of the redeemed that says so. You know, one of the things that was a struggle for me was crying out to God and not being sure whether he heard me. So I cried out to him, save me. I cried out to him, save me. I cried out to him, save me. Because when it comes to our sin nature, it's not quite the same as being on a ship and it's all of a sudden flat. You're like, I don't know. How do I know I'm saved? How do I know I'm spared eternity until I die? And then a teacher reminded me of Romans 10 verse nine. And it says this, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And he reminded me, do you believe that God tells the truth or is he a liar? He tells the truth. So if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you've confessed with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. You can be assured of it. You don't have to have lightning in the sky. You don't have to have some card with your name on it. You don't have to have the magical prayer that was said in the magical place. You simply have to trust that God is who he says he is. Confess that he is Lord. Confess your sins to him. Believe that Jesus was raised from the dead and you will be saved. And then you have a great story. Not because you're a great person or you had great things to tell about in your, your past, you're, it's a great story because we have a great God who has saved us. A great God that was merciful. He had the power to wipe you and I out to say enough. And yet he didn't. In his love, 
he reached out and he redeemed us. And he satisfies your longing soul with good. You know what that's like if you have been redeemed by God to have a satisfied soul. And I thank God for that. So are you redeemed? Then you have a story to tell. A story that together we can rehearse to understand how God is so great so we can thank him for his steadfast love and for his wondrous works to the children of man. 